Great song, great song, great message. The title of this message and the title of a new series we are starting today is Living Life Backward, which is from a quote by Soren Kierkegaard, who said, define life forward, live it backward. To live life well, to live with perspective and wisdom and even joy, you have to live life backward. And that's partly the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. I fell in love with this book earlier this year, and uh, so for the next few weeks, Casey and I are going to preach on this Old Testament book. It's going to be a challenge. Uh, Some people see this book as depressing and pessimistic, but I have found it to be a huge help in living life. It's changed my perspective on some things. To live life well, you have to live it backward. Now, Woody Allen had a similar thought. He said, in my next life, I want to live my life backwards. You start out dead and get that out of the way, and then you wake up in an old people's home but get feeling better every day. You get kicked out for being too healthy, go collect your pension, and then when you start work, you get a gold watch and party on your first day. You work for 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement, and then you party, drink alcohol, and are generally promiscuous. Now, this is Woody Allen, none of you I know. And then you're ready for high school, and then you go to primary school, and you become a kid, and all you do is play. You have no responsibilities. You become a baby, and you're taken care of in every way until you're born. And then you spend your last nine months floating in luxurious spa-like condition with central heating and room service on tap. Live backwards. That sound good? Well, that's not what Ecclesiastes is about. Living life backwards means, of course, living in light of your death. Start with the end in mind. Every journey starts that way with the destinations our focus. Now, I mentioned this in a sermon before, a few years ago, but there's a website called deathclock.com, and you can find out how much time you have left on this earth. It's kind of depressing for someone my age. I told Casey about it, and he went back to his office, and he looked it up, and it came back in a few minutes, and he said, I'll never do that again. We just don't want to talk about this. But let me suggest to you that only a proper perspective on death provides a true perspective on life. Living in light of your death will help you live wiser, freer, more openly, and actually happier. It'll give you a bigger heart and enable you to enjoy life and see there are many things to cherish and to be grateful for. Death is a great teacher. I've seen people's lives transformed by a brush with death. And death is one of the themes in this book of Ecclesiastes. Now, there's other themes, but this is one of the major ones. This book has baffled people. It has depressed people. It has confused them. Parts of it still escape my understanding. And Ecclesiastes is, to be honest, kind of strange. Even the name, Ecclesiastes, is a weird name. It's not like Peter, Andrew, James, or John. Ecclesiastes almost sounds like a disease, doesn't it? But this book is spot on. Only if you prepare to die can you really know how to live. So let's get started. Ecclesiastes 1.1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. The teacher here, the son of David and king, traditionally is Solomon. Some scholars question if Solomon wrote this, but it definitely was written from a Solomon-like perspective. And we'll talk about more him more as we move along. But there's a few things about Solomon that do seem to fit this book. Number one, he was the wisest man who ever lived, except Jesus. He's given credit for some of the book of Proverbs and the Song of Solomon and this book, so he's very wise. Number two, Solomon was very successful, rich, and powerful. He had it all. He made Donald Trump look like a pauper. He was the American dream on steroids. And then number three about Solomon, 
He grew old and died. And when you read Ecclesiastes, it sounds like this is written toward the end of the author's life, reflecting back after having it all and experiencing it all. What's he going to say about life? What has he learned through all this wealth and wisdom and aging and experience? Now, I hope you're ready for this right off the top. Verse 2, you're anticipating the words of the wisest man who ever lived, reflecting on life. What's he going to say? I want you to read this with me. Meaningless. Everything is. Aren't you glad you came today? Right off the top. I think he's using shock and awe just to shake us up. This book is a wake-up call. It grabs us by the head, points us to a mirror, and says, Here, look at yourself. Your life is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Some translations use the word vanity. Some translate it emptiness. What's he saying? What's going on? I don't know if you ever played the game Let's Pretend. Kids do it all the time. I was watching our grandkids play once and observing the imagination they have. You know, blue sheet becomes a lake. Pillows around the lake become the embankment. A blanket over a card table becomes a cave. And they pretend to be a fireman or a ninja or a princess. A a, a room can become a barnyard, a battlefield, a hospital, a tea party, or even a church. Kids pretend, and it's actually healthy. Imagination's important, and they need to do that. But as they grow older, they need to learn the difference between imagination and the real world. In the real hospital, people are actually in pain, and doctors don't always make everyone better. In a real barnyard, those animals may bite or get sick or make a mess and stink. A real battlefield leads to real injury and real death. You can't live your whole life in this fantasy world. And yet, many, in fact, maybe most people do live in a pretend world. And in that pretend world, death does not exist. We all have this temptation, this temptation to think that death doesn't apply to me, which means that most of us really are out of touch with reality. And we want it that way. We live as if death doesn't exist. Here's another fantasy. Most people think they can find meaning in this world, either in money, pleasure, work, success, sex, family, relationships. Solomon had it all. He had all those things, and his conclusion, it is all, what? Meaningless. But we want to pretend that these things will give us meaning. If I make enough money, if I experience enough fun, if my kids are successful and happy, if I live a long life, my life will then have meaning. And Solomon says, you're living a fantasy. He wants to get us out of this pretend world and face reality. Quit playing pretend. A big function of a lot of media and movies and entertainment today is to help people escape reality. I see plots of exciting, imaginative lives, so unlike my dreary life and job. I see lovers very much in love, handsome and beautiful, so unlike my love life. Actually, mine's pretty good. Don't worry about that. Uh, Our kids are, I see kids that are witty and intelligent and wise beyond their years, so unlike mine. Let's pretend. Let's escape into this fantasy world and pretend we have this exciting, adventurous, romantic, idyllic, meaningful life, and then we leave the movie and go back to reality. Most entertainment is to help us escape. Book of Ecclesiastes, let's get back to reality. It removes our fantasies and exposes life for what it really is. And his language really unsettles us. Life is a heavy burden, he says in verse 13. I hated life in chapter 2. This guy had it all, and he hated life. It would be better if never been born. It lo- he looks at this fallen, crippled world, 
Folks, here's the reality. Wake up. Back in Jewish culture, Ecclesiastes were considered by some the black sheep of the Bible. Rabbinic schools used to debate whether this book defiled a person, made them unholy. It is so unorthodox. Everything is meaningless. Everything. The word for meaningless is from a word that is often translated breath or breeze. Some translate it vapor or puff of wind or mist. The message translates it this way, smoke. Nothing but smoke. That's, there's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. So what's he telling us about life? Well, first of all, life is smoke or meaningless because life is short. It is a vapor. When you blow out a candle, how long does the puff of smoke last? Not very. It's very real, but very temporary. Verse 4, he says, generations come and generations go. People are born, people die. But the problem is, we live as if that's not true. We live with this illusion that I'm going to live forever and we're going to go on. Death has been pushed to the recesses of our mind. We go to a funeral and then we leave and go on with life thinking, well, that's not me. And Ecclesiastes says, wake up, that is you. Verse 11, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Not only will we die, we will be forgotten. My dad died almost 50 years ago. Very few people know who George Weber was, and in another 50 years, probably no one will remember, and no one will care. Is there any meaning in that? It doesn't matter how loving George was, or how good of a life he had, or how much money he made, or how, what a good family he had. He's dead. And no one cares. What meaning is there in that? Now, on deathclock.com, I found out that I have, at least when I did it last week, 296 billion seconds left. My projected death date is November 30th, 2027. Nine years. I hope they're wrong. Ellen's death date is August 26, 2033. She gets six years longer. And what's really kind of spooky about it, the seconds are ticking down as you look at it. Tick, tick. Count down to your death. Now, some of you are so old, the clock has stopped. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came? Yeah. Casey said, I'll never do that again. He wants to keep pretending. I'm just kidding. It, it is an eye-opener. You know, I think everyone really ought to do it just once in a while, just as a reminder, just as a reality check. Life is short. Whether you live 10 days or 110 years, it's short. Here's another fact. Life is elusive. Try to grab smoke or try to keep it for later. Smoke is real, but it'll escape your grasp. You can't control smoke or vapor. How much control do you have over your life? Not much. How secure is your future? How healthy will you be even tomorrow? Nations come and go. How long will our nation be here? Life is like building a sandcastle on the beach. It might be nice, but it's only for a while. And deep down, we know this is true. I mean, intellectually, we know this, but every day we play this game. Let's pretend. Let's pretend we'll live forever. Let's pretend we can control our lives. Let's pretend someone else will get the cancer. Someone else will have those things happen. So Ecclesiastes wants to destroy all the pretense. And then he asks in verse 3, what do people gain from all their labels at which they toil under the sun? What do we gain from all this work and activity we do? The implied answer is no, Nothing. Jack Higgins, famous author of such bestsellers as The Eagle Has Landed, says the one thing he knows now that he wishes he had known as a small boy is this. When you get to the top, there's nothing there. 
And Ecclesiastes teaches that, especially in next week's section. It's meaningless, all this toil and labor and striving. Now, under the sun is a phrase you'll see a lot in this book, 29 times actually. It's talking about life on earth, our daily lives. The word gain here carries the idea of leftovers or surplus or profit. At the end of my life, what will be the surplus? What will be the gain? There'll be nothing. He paints this incredibly stark picture. He punctures our balloon of fantasy. Life is short. Life is elusive. Now hang in here with me. Okay, it's going to get better, promise. Ecclesiastes will tell us how to live in such a world. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. What's he saying there? Sun rises, sun sets, the wind round and round it goes, streams flow into the sea, evaporates and goes back into the sea. Life is repetitive and circular. You can just feel the ebb and flow in the text. And that's the point. Everything goes round and round or comes and goes. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. And nature is really a mirror to humanity. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. The idea of progress is a myth. We're not going anywhere. Now, some would protest, well, there has been progress. We got cars and planes, electricity and computers. Solomon had none of those. But Solomon, whoever wrote this book, knew that there were new things. In his day, irrigation, navigation were new. So he's not talking about gadgets. He's talking about humanity. People are no better today than they were 5,000 years ago. We're not more intelligent. We're not more just. We're not better informed. Some would say technology has made us less informed. We're just one generation among thousands. We come and go like the wind, and there's nothing new. Rudyard Kipling said, the craft that we call modern, the crimes that we call new, John Bunyan had them typed and filed in 1682. That's one reason the Bible is so relevant. Humanity is no different today than when this was written 2,500 years ago. And the way the text is written, it almost wants to feel the monotony. Round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. Verse 7, it's going to return again. Verse 9, what will, will be again, will be done again. Gives the idea that life is monotonous. Same routine, day in and day out. We struggle to get ahead, but do you ever really get ahead? We do all kinds of things to cover up the monotony. Get a new romance, get a new job, get a new toy, get a new house, get a new vacation, whatever. But there really is nothing new. In verse 8, it says, all things are wearisome more than one can say. Psychiatrist Henry Ward said, most of my patients come to me simply because they are bored. Isn't that amazing? We have more gadgets, more things to do, more so-called newness today, and more depression. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Our senses are fed, but they're never filled. We try new ideas, new gadgets, new hopes, hoping to fill them up. It ends up just the same old. We never really arrive. There's never really new or satisfying. And that's number five. Life is, is dissatisfying. So stop pretending. Let's just get real. Let's be honest here. And I have found that this perspective, although initially sounds nihilistic and depressing, is really helpful. For example, very simple example. You get a new car. And from day one, you realize that car is headed to the junkyard. So you get that first scratch. Does it really matter? 
Don't get all hyped up about it. Don't put your hope and joy in that. Appreciate it, sure, enjoy it, but don't get attached. That's not where your hope is. Or you see an ad for Sandals Beach Vacation. Okay, that's nice. Enjoy it if that's what you want. But it's not as perfect as it looks. It's a fantasy. Every commercial is selling you a fantasy. Nothing will really satisfy. Lady Ecclesiastes, plant your feet in reality. It'll really help. On Facebook, people show pictures of their wonderful, idyllic life. How great it is. I know these people. Fantasy. Money. It's all going to be just worthless paper someday. Do not get too attached to it. Ecclesiastes will help you see life differently and approach things in life differently than most people around you do. It's not a hard book to read, but sometimes it can be confusing. At times it seems random and helter-skelter and not real systematic, even contradictory. But you know, that's life, isn't it? Random, helter-skelter, contradictory, not systematic. Because life is complex. So it's hard to outline this book because it's hard to outline life. And one way to look at it is it's like a woven texture with different topics woven all together, different strands of thread appearing here and there. There's a strand of happiness in chapters 2, 3, 5, 7, 8, and 9. A strand about work in 1, 2, 4, 6, 9, 10, and 11. A strand about power in verses chapters 1, 3, 4, 5, 8, and 10. Same with money and property and death. Life is complex, even a, a little messy. And when you read it, you can see why people would get depressed. But, folks, there's a good way to look at this. First of all, the end will make it all right. When we stand before the Creator, everything will be explained. Everything will make sense. Everything will be made right. But right now, life under the sun is short. It's elusive. It's repetitive. It's filled with boredom and dissatisfaction. And if you are looking for meaning and satisfaction in this life, you are living in a pretend world. And I think that's a big problem in our culture today. We think we can get heaven on earth. You can't. You will never be filled fully in this life. And this book will help you live wiser and better, and ironically with more joy, because it will teach you that the joy you're chasing in this life isn't there. So how should we then live? How do we navigate this complexity? And that's a lot of what this series and this book is about. How should we then live? Most people live life forward. And you have to to a certain extent. And that's good. Uh, we start with today and look to the future. What's the future going to bring? It gives a sense of purpose when we look forward. Especially as Christians it does. But Ecclesiastes also teaches we also have to live life backward. Start with the end and work back. Or as Kierkegaard put it, define life forward, live it backward. Only if you're prepared to die can you really know how to live. Now for the Jews, Ecclesiastes was to be read every year during the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was, ironically, a joyful time. It was in the fall season, maybe kind of like our Thanksgiving, uh, where they'd celebrate two things, the natural provision of creation the harvest of crops and the grain, the beauty of nature and the natural bounty that God gives. And then second, the supernatural blessing of provision in the wilderness when the people of God looked back at the miraculous preservation in the desert after they were freed from Egypt where God provided food and meat and water for them. So the Feast of Tabernacles was a time of plenty and rejoicing in God's provision. My cup runneth over. So here's another truth that comes out of Ecclesiastes. Very important. Life is a gift. God has blessed us. There is so much to live and live well. 
And that's a big part of this book. And, and this book, uh, some would say is maybe the most negative and most realistic of the books in the Bible, was required reading at the most positive of festivals. God gives, God blesses, and we should see it as a gift. And Ecclesiastes affirms that, but with a warning. If at any point there's a separation of God from the blessings of God, if there's a separation between the provider and the provision, it's empty and meaningless. Some would argue the two main words in this book are meaningless and God, and without God, life is meaningless. If we separate any part of our lives from Him, we are left with an empty bag. No part of God's creation, whether it be success or family or money or religion or wisdom or education or recreation, no matter how good it is, none of those can supply the key to life. Do not separate His provision from Him. So it's a wake-up call. It's a good wake-up call. One other part. I'll finish with this. The Feast of Tabernacles was also called the Feast of Booths, when the Jews would live in a booth or a thatched hut for seven days. And you'd see thatched huts throughout the city of Jerusalem, temporary, fragile shelters, as a reminder that life is temporary and fragile. Living in these huts was a reminder that only God is certain. Only God provides and protects. Do not take his blessings and bounty and forget that they are temporary. So yes, I will die. And so will you. Life is short, it's elusive, monotonous, dissatisfying. But that perspective will teach you the right way to live and ironically give you the meaning you're searching for. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this book. I thank you for the perspective and the wisdom that it gives. I thank you for its realism. And I pray as we journey through this book that you will speak to us and work in us and give us a newer, better, wiser way to live. A life that will bring deep joy, not the surface joy that so many chase. Thank you for being our God our provider. Thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.